Welcome to SCOTUS Cast, Foreign Born Children and Equal Protection Edition. Thank you for tuning in. On November 9, 2016, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Lynch v. Morales Santana. Morales Santana's father was born in Puerto Rico but acquired U.S. citizenship in 1917 under the Jones Act of Puerto Rico. Morales Santana was born in 1962 in the Dominican Republic to his father and Dominican mother, who were unmarried at the time. In 1970, upon his parents' marriage, he was statutorily legitimated and was admitted to the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident in 1976. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, which was in effect at the time of Morales Santana's birth, limits the ability of an unwed citizen father to confer citizenship on his child born abroad, where the child's mother is not a citizen at the time of the child's birth, more stringently than it limits the ability of a similarly situated unwed citizen mother to do the same. In 2000, Morales Santana was placed in removal proceedings after having been convicted of various felonies. An immigration judge denied his application for withholding of removal on the basis of derivative citizenship obtained through his father. He filed a motion to reopen in 2010 based on a violation of equal protection and newly obtained evidence relating to his father, but the Board of Immigration Appeals denied the motion. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed the board's decision, however, and concluded that Morales Santana was a citizen as of birth. The Attorney General of the United States then obtained a grant of certiorari from the Supreme Court. The two questions now before the Supreme Court are, one, whether Congress's decision to impose a different physical presence requirement on unwed citizen mothers of foreign-born children than on other citizen parents of foreign-born children violates the Fifth Amendment's guarantee of equal protection, and two, whether the Court of Appeals erred in conferring U.S. citizenship on respondent in the absence of any express statutory authority to do so. To discuss the case, we have Alina Traeger, who is Assistant Professor of Law at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. And now, Professor Traeger. This is a case about the rules that historically governed how foreign-born children can derive citizenship from their uh, U.S. citizen parents. Uh, Luis Ramon Morales Santana, who's the respondent in this case, uh, was born in the Dominican Republic. At the time of his birth, his father was a U.S. citizen, his mother was not, uh, and his parents were not married. At the time of his birth, the Immigration Nationality Act of 1952 governed derivative citizenship. That means uh, citizenship that's acquired not by virtue of birth in the U.S., but derived from one's parents' citizenship. Under the 1952 Act, different requirements applied to married and unmarried parents, and different requirements applied to unmarried fathers and unmarried mothers. If an unmarried U.S. citizen mother wanted to transmit her citizenship to her child, she could do so if she were physically present in the U.S. for one continuous year at any point in her life before the child was born. Now, if an unmarried U.S. citizen father wanted to do the same, the requirements for him were significantly more demanding. He could do so only if he were present in the U.S. for 10 years prior to the child's birth, five of which had to be after the age of 14. Uh, The father would also have to legitimate the child, that is, legally assert paternity in some way. Uh, Morales Santana's father fell just shy of the physical presence requirement for unmarried citizen fathers. But if he were an unmarried mother, Morales Santana would have no difficulties with a citizenship claim. 
in the court below, Morales-Santana successfully argued that imposing these very unequal physical presence requirements on fathers and mothers who want to pass their citizenship onto their child is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And the federal government then appealed uh, to the Supreme Court. So generally speaking, there are two main issues here. First, is there an adequate justification for treating U.S. citizen mothers and fathers differently? Or is this impermissible gender-based discrimination? Uh, and second, if it is impermissible gender-based discrimination, if the provisions do violate the Constitution, what is the appropriate remedy? There was also a preliminary issue of the proper level of scrutiny, uh, that is, how persuasive of a justification the government needs to, def to defend the gender-based differences. That issue didn't get a lot of time at oral arguments, so I'm not going to raise it here. But let's begin with uh, the question of justification. Are there convincing gender-neutral explanations for the different physical presence requirements for unmarried fathers and mothers? Uh, the federal government identifies two reasons why Congress decided to make it so much easier for U.S. citizen mothers to pass citizenship onto their children than fathers. First, they argue that the different treatment exists to ensure that a foreign-born child has a connection to the U.S., uh, the obvious question here is why would Congress have thought that foreign-born children of U.S. mothers have a sufficient connection if their mothers only resided in the U.S. for a year, uh, but children of U.S. fathers need their fathers to have resided in the U.S. for 10 years? At arguments, Justice Breyer seemed to describe the government's answer to that question as complicated. Um, here's the gist of that complicated answer. The government claims that the different treatment mothers and fathers receive has to do with the likelihood of split loyalties or competing allegiances to two countries. Although the law distinguishes between mothers and fathers, what Congress, Congress is really getting at is a distinction between children with one legally recognized parent versus two legally recognized parents at birth. Uh, how is that and why does that matter? Well, if parents are unmarried and the child is born out of wedlock, then at birth, the mother's usually the only legitimate recognized parent. There's no doubt about the identity of the mother, uh, but without marriage, there's no clear answer as to the identity of the father. And the mother remains the only recognized parent unless the father takes some action to legitimate the child. In most of the world, the government says uh, the father could not pass on his citizenship to a child without legitimation. So if the mother is a U.S. citizen and her child is not legitimated by the father, that child doesn't have competing loyalties. By contrast, if the father is a U.S. citizen who wants to pass on his citizenship, the mother doesn't have to legitimate the child to be recognized as a legal parent. That means that uh, any legitimate, legitimated child of a U.S. citizen father and of a non-citizen mother is very likely to have those competing allegiances. That's why the government explains an unmarried U.S. citizen father was treated the same as married parents of different nationalities, where one is a U.S. citizen and one is not. In both of those cases, the physical presence requirement is 10 years uh, because it is meant to counteract or compensate for the existence of competing allegiances to the other parent's country. Now, Morales-Santana argued that the justification is not persuasive. The 1952 Act actually made it clear that when a child derives citizenship from its U.S. citizen mother, a later legitimation by a non-citizen father doesn't divest that child of the derivative citizenship. Now, that clearly means that such a child can have split loyalties once he's legitimated by the non-citizen father, right, because then he acquires a second legally recognized parent. And if so, uh, then being born to a U.S. citizen mother is not a very good proxy for having connection to the U.S. without competing allegiances. 
And of course, uh, even if the alien father doesn't legitimate the child, if he's not a legally recognized parent, he can still be a big part of the child's life in a way that does create split allegiances in actual life. Uh, now, the government insists that because citizenship is derived at birth under this provision, uh, whether or not a child has one or two legally recognized parents matters only at the moment of birth. Uh, that sounds like an odd claim. It would mean that Congress only cared about a child's competing allegiances to other nations at his birth, which is the moment when he's least likely to have any loyalties. Uh, and at least two justices, uh, Kagan and Breyer, seem quite puzzled about this logic at arguments, which suggests to me that this argument might be an uphill battle for the government. The second justification the federal government offers has to do with Congress's interest in reducing the risk that a child of a U.S. citizen would be stateless at birth. In 1940, when Congress first articulated these rules, and in 1952, when the rules were revised, Congress perceived that the risk of statelessness was greater for a child born abroad out of wedlock to a U.S. citizen mother than to a U.S. citizen father. The reason the risk was greater, according to the government, has to do with how citizenship rules worked in countries who follow ius uh, sanguinis. Uh, that's a Latin phrase meaning right of blood. In those countries, citizenship is derived by blood from a parent. Uh, and because, again, at the moment of birth, the unmarried mother is the only legally recognized parent, hers is the only citizenship that can be passed on. So if she's a U.S. citizen giving birth abroad in one of these right of blood countries, her child would be stateless. Her child would be stateless uh, if it can't claim her U.S. citizenship. That's not the case for U.S. citizen fathers uh, because their child is born also to a mother who is a citizen of some country, and the child can derive her citizenship. Uh, this justification received much less attention at oral arguments, um, and one justice, uh, Justice Breyer, implied that he had some doubts about this. Uh, in particular, he told the government there's no point in going over the argument, uh, but the court received, quote, like 17 briefs, unquote, uh, that contradict the government's claims. Uh, what he's referring to are amicus briefs by various scholars, which basically say that there's no basis to believe that the risk of statelessness is greater for children of unmarried U.S. mothers than fathers. Uh, the government simply didn't characterize the citizenship laws in other countries accurately. Uh, and both the amicus briefs and Morales-Santana argue that there's very little, if any, evidence that Congress was actually thinking about this when it imposed the different physical presence requirements in fathers and mothers. So to sum up Morales-Santana's argument, uh, this is not about the connection to the U.S. or the risk of statelessness. What legislative history suggests is that Congress intended to make it easier for unmarried women than for men to return to the U.S. with their foreign-born children because the mother was deemed to be the natural caretaker of a child born out of wedlock. Uh, that was the prevalent belief about the roles and abilities of men and women, uh, and modern equal protection principles shouldn't allow Congress to codify stereotypes of this sort, uh, according to Morales-Santana. So if there is an equal protection violation here, the next important issue is how could the court remedy it? Um, and that's actually what the court spent the bulk of its time on during arguments. Uh, the difficulty is this. There are at least two ways uh, of remedying the inequality in theory. Right? One is to lower the burden on unmarried U.S. fathers to require only one year's physical presence. Uh, but another is to raise the burden on unmarried U.S. mothers. Either option would solve the inequality, uh, but both are quite problematic. Now, obviously, Morales-Santana argues for lowering the requirements on fathers, which is the only option that would help him. Uh, there are a few real problems with that remedy. Uh, for one thing, it seems to extend a benefit of citizenship to some indeterminate number of others without an express decision by Congress to do so. Uh, it was evident that this concerned several justices as they tried repeatedly to figure out what the magnitude of the effect would be, uh, how many people would be entitled to citizenship under this remedy. 
Morales-Santana eventually told the court that it's a fairly limited class, uh, but it isn't clear on what he is basing this conclusion. There doesn't seem to be a good way to know how many children there are of U.S. citizen fathers who were legitimated but fell short of the physical presence requirement in effect between 1952 and 1986 and who could now come forward and claim citizenship. Uh, for another thing, this remedy seems to deepen another potential equal protection problem. It would treat unmarried U.S. citizens better than married couples where only one parent is a U.S. citizen. Uh, that is, it would treat parents who had children out of wedlock better than parents who actually married. The justices also brought up this concern during arguments. Um, Morales-Santana made a reasonable point in response. This particular inequality already existed in the law by virtue of the less demanding requirements placed on unmarried U.S. citizen mothers. Uh, but that, of course, doesn't completely address the concern. Um, extending the same benefit to unmarried U.S. fathers would create a more clearly disparate treatment between married and unmarried parents. Uh, Justice Kennedy and the Chief Justice in particular wanted to know whether that result is something Congress would have chosen had it known that treating fathers and mothers differently was unconstitutional. And the question is not what Congress would do now, uh, but what it would have chosen in 1940 and 1952 when those provisions were put in place and revised. That's not an easy thought experiment, uh, but Morales-Santana argued that Congress lowered the physical presence requirement on unmarried mothers out of concern about separating non-marital foreign-born children from their guardian parent. Now, Congress assumed at the time that the mother is the natural guardian parent, but if they were constitutionally prevented from legislating on the basis of that assumption, surely they would choose to prevent separations of children from their U.S. citizen parents, whether it's father or mother, rather than make it more difficult for all parents to bring their children over. And if, as the government claims, Congress was at all concerned about reducing the risk of statelessness, reducing the physical presence requirement on fathers advances that interest as well. Making it easier for U.S. citizen fathers to transmit citizenship to children would reduce the chances of statelessness for children born uh, in those youth sanguinous countries where only the father can transmit citizenship. It was tough to tell whether the court found these explanations satisfactory, uh, but it was evident that at least some justices saw more serious problems with the alternative remedy, uh, raising the physical presence requirements from others. Uh, Justice Kagan seemed to have zeroed in the key issue when she implied that this remedy would actually do nothing to redress the inequality. Uh, the court couldn't revoke citizenship of people who have previously received it through their mothers. It would have to apply the remedy prospectively. Uh, but how many people are there now who seek to claim citizenship on the basis of being born to a U.S. mother between 1952 and 1986. Um, even if that number is not zero, most of the inequality at issue here would certainly remain. Uh, we have to believe that most U.S. citizen mothers who could transmit their citizenship under the 1952 law already did so, uh, while U.S. citizen fathers could not do so during the 30-plus years when the law was in effect. So although theoretically possible, Raising the requirements on mothers whose children would have to rely on the law in effect between 1952 and 86 uh, is really no remedy at all. Uh, now, this isn't the first time uh, this issue was argued to the court. Right, The same provision was challenged on the same grounds just a few years ago. Uh, in that 2011 case, Justice Kagan recused herself, and the court split four to four. Uh, 
which meant no opinion was issued by the Supreme Court and the lower court opinion was left standing. Uh, now, we don't know what the split was there exactly, but we don't need to know uh, who, uh, who ended up on which side to realize that the fate of the case largely depends on how Justice Kagan views it now. And regardless of who voted which, which way, the remaining seven justices must have split four to three in some way. If they stand on their opinions in that case, uh, if Justice Kagan now joins the three, there will be another tie without a decision. If she joins the four, that will be the majority. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. For more episodes of SCOTUScast, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org slash multimedia.